Well, we haven't looked at 2 Peter since last year, so let's look at it again this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, and we will continue our verse-by-verse study of that epistle. We looked at 1 Peter earlier last year, and 1 Peter, you recall, deals with, and 2 Peter both, really deal with attacks on the church persecution of the church. Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking those whom he will devour. Satan is always trying to attack the church. In 1 Peter, the issue were attacks from the outside, as you may recall. It was persecution from without. 2 Peter, it's persecution within the church. The issue is false teaching, the issue is heresies, the issue is those who would seek to divide the church. That's Second Peter. That's the issue of Second Peter, persecution within the church. And then First Peter, that would be things like just enemies of the church, false, believer, uh, uh, false believers, but also non-believers attacking the church, slandering the church, things like that. But in chapter 2 of Second Peter, you see the issue of inside persecution. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, and just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. That is what Peter is seeking to address here. He has basically been trying to show us that they're going to attack some major doctrines of the church, and he wants to remind them of those doctrines. As we saw last time, you notice in verses 12 through 15, therefore, I will all, this is of chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, I'm going to die soon, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. I want to make sure that even though you have heard these truths before, even though you are familiar with these things, I want to remind you of them because I know that once I leave, those false teachers are going to come in and try to tell you they're wrong, to try and undermine the truth. Those false teachers are going to come in, come in amongst you and teach heresies. And I want you to know the truth so that the error stands out. You'll be able to identify the error. I'm coming to the end of my life. I'm going to die. And so that's why he is so diligent. That is why he is so motivated to share with them the doctrines that he has shared in this letter. He says they teach false ways on how to be right with God. They teach false ways on how to grow in Christ. Uh, as you recall, we saw in first, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, they, they, they don't tell you to uh, work out your salvation, verse 5. They don't tell you to work out your salvation by adding knowledge and self-control and, and, perse- excuse me, and perseverance and godliness. 
They don't tell you these things. They've got other ways. They've got false ways. He says, you want to be sure that you belong to Christ. He says in verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. You want to have assurance of your salvation. You want to know that you are one of his children because when they come along and they're going to seek to undermine that and cause you to doubt that. Verse 10, therefore, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And then he comes to verse 12, I'm reminding you of these things. I am diligent doing that. I am motivated to do that, to establish you in these truths, these truths that you already know. There's an urgency on my mind to do that. And that is really what the church is to do continually. I told you, most of my ministry and anybody else standing in this pulpit is reminding ministry. We really aren't telling you anything new. We just find different ways to say the same thing. If you hear something new all the time, there's got to be some error in there somewhere. It's probably some false teaching. But it's always the same truths that we need to be rooted and grounded in, and that's Peter's concern. And that brings us to the passage this morning. And the question is, um, why are you so motivated about these things? Why are these things so important to you? And Peter's going to tell them today in verses 16 through 21, and the next week as well, he's going to tell them, he's going to tell them because they're the truth. They're the truth. And versus the lies that you're going to hear, this is the truth. And I know it's the truth because I saw it. I was an eyewitness to it. And secondly, because you had the certain sure word of Scripture. Another area that the false teachers attack is the truth, the Bible. They attack the apostles, the trustworthiness of the apostles. They attack the source of truth, where we got the truth from. They go after the truth and seek to undermine the truth. Look in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain." So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. He says what I am teaching you is truth and the basis on the basis of these two things, that it's my eyewitness experience with the truth and it's the trustworthiness of Scripture. That's your outline for this, these, this section. 16 through 18, my eyewitness, I'm the eyewitness to the truth. And secondly, the trustworthiness of Scripture. Think about that. The trustworthiness of the apostles, their eyewitness accounts, and the trustworthiness of the written word of, of the Bible. And you think about it, Todd Murray makes an important, I think, note here. He says, when you go into a court of law, 
eyewitnesses and key documents are primary in proving your case. Both the defendant and the prosecutor will use eyewitnesses and will use documents to try to prosecute or defend a case. That's what Peter's saying here as well. The eyewitness, what did you see? What did you hear? What was going on? That's the eyewitness. The documents, what do they say? Who wrote them? What, were this, what was the context of them? I served on a jury one time, and I remember that. That was what we wanted. We went on the, the, the witnesses, eyewitnesses, accounts. It was so important to what happened when two or three people say the same thing. That gives credibility. Documentation would be like contracts or um, uh, emails or text or anything that's written down. So you see, that's kind of how that fits in here. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm motivated to remind you of these things because they're the truth. And I was an eyewitness to them. And we have documentation that this is the truth. And when the false teachers come, you've got my eyewitness account. And you've got documentation that this is the truth. These things are true because they are going to be attacked and they still are attacked today. You know that. You know the Bible is continually being attacked. Hath God really said? So first, let's just consider the eyewitness account this morning. The reason that Peter is diligent, enthusiastic, and motivated to keep reminding them of these truths is because they're true, they're verifiable. Notice in verse 16, I want to divide this in three ways. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. That's uh, stated in the negative. We did not follow cleverly devised tales. At the end, he has a positive statement. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You see that? In between, you have the content of what he said. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word for at the beginning of verse 16 links it up with what he just said regarding I'm going to remind you of these things. The reason I'm so diligent to remind you and is because I'm going to die is because my life is short and these truths I'm convinced are true and I want you to, uh, I want you to know that. I want you to know how true they are and why they're true. I saw them. I heard them. It's what I experienced. That's what Peter is giving here, his experience. We, notice the change there, it's a subtle change. He's been talking about, I remind you of these things, and now in verse 16, he switches to the we, to we, meaning the apostles. We, the apostles, the eyewitnesses. And he says, none of us, none of us apostles are guilty of following cleverly devised tales. Follows is a word that means to conform or to be dependent on. None of us apostles was dependent on cleverly devised tales. I'm not dependent on anyone or anyone else's account. Peter, James, and John, as you recall, were the ones that were taken to the mountain of the transfiguration, which is going to be referred to in this passage. We'll get more to that later. But so when he says the we here, most likely he's referring just to Peter and John because James has already died in Acts 12. 
So you have those three, as we will see later as we come to that passage, who went on that mountain and saw the power of the Lord Jesus Christ on that mountain of transfiguration. We will get to that, like I said, in just a moment. But his point is this. We are not dependent. We are not conformed to these cleverly devised myths, is the word, for tales. Peter says we don't follow those. None of the apostles do. We never have any part to do with them. They have never been a part of the apostolic witness. In 1 Peter 1.4, you don't have to turn there, but here's how the word myths is used in different places in the Bible. Here's how Paul uses that word myths or fables or tales. In 1.4 of 1 Timothy, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. In 1 Timothy 4.7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. 2 Timothy 4.4, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You have the truth and then you have the myths. You have the truth and you have cleverly devised tales that lead to speculation. They're not rooted in anything. They're just in the minds of men. Peter says, we did not conform Ourselves, we were not conformed or dependent on myths and tales. We did not follow those. The word cleverly devised, you see that in verse 16? They, they were concocted. That's the idea. They were put together. They were framed to deceive you. That's the whole intention of them. It's not like Aesop's fables. Uh, we all know those are not true. We all know allegory. We know those are all intention of those is to teach some kind of lesson or, or moral of the story or something like that. Everyone knows that's just a way to teach something. But these are different. Paul calls them doctrines of demons because that's their source. They don't come from God. They come from Satan who wants to distract and pull people away from the truth. You've got to always watch out for this, folks. You've always got to watch out for, is this truth or is it a myth? What is the basis for it being true? Why, do I, why should I believe this? And so Peter is, is telling us this, and, and, and that we don't conform to these or are dependent on these cleverly devised tales. He's telling us this because he wants to be distinguished from the false teachers for sure, but also I believe he's defending himself from the false teachers because the false teachers are probably accusing him. If you look at the context of 2 Peter, the, the false teachers are most likely accusing him of having devised, cleverly devised tales. They're making those kinds of accusations against him. They're saying, hey, don't listen to Peter. He's just teaching this teaching he has about the return of Christ, which is a specific doctrine we're going to look at here in a moment. His teaching about that is just a myth. And Peter is saying, no, whatever I've told you is not based on secondary sources or concocted myths. I was an eyewitness. I saw it. Early church writer called cleverly devised tales those that are put together by quack physicians. So this has been around a long time. Quacks have been around for a long time. Selling snake oil, whatever. 
And then you'll notice in verse 16, this is the content of his witness. This is what he's been telling them. Uh, This is what he told them. When we made known, that's the main verb of this verse. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We had a specific time in mind, when. He uses the word when. But the word we, we the apostles, probably narrowed down to Peter and John, talking about the transfiguration at this point. And I'll show you why I think that in just a moment. But the content of what we made known to you relates to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. The coming, the perusa, and presence of our, or presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's really, there's only one article in that verse, the power and coming. So it's basically, basically the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not basing that on cleverly devised tales. But I was talking about that, it's not based on that. I'm urgent, it's urgent for me to make sure you understand why that is true. This future presence, this future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. That is what I told you. That's not a myth. That's not based on, on, on somebody else's words. I heard them and now I'm telling them to you. This omnipotent, powerful coming of the Lord at his second coming. Let me just read to you some passages in Matthew chapter 24. If you want to turn there, you can. But in Matthew 24, this is where the word coming is used several times. 24.3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming, your perusa, your coming, your presence at the end of the age? Matthew 24, 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's Matthew 24, 27. Matthew 24, 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah like? Everybody was going about their regular routines of life. And all of a sudden, the judgment came. All of a sudden, verse 39 says, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. For 100 years, they were warned about it, but yet they were still taken, shocked by it, that it actually came. This judgment seemingly came out of nowhere. The, the sudden judgment that had been sneered at suddenly appeared, and this is how the word coming is used, like that. It, it, the presence came. This judgment came. And understand, some commentators have thought that Peter is referring to the first coming. That's not the first coming. The first coming is, was not powerful coming. It was not a majestic coming. It was a humble coming. It was in a stable. That's the first coming. He, the Son of Man came to minister, to, to minister, not to be ministered unto. The second coming is judgment. It's judgment. I want you to know I'm urgently reminding you of these things because it's true. 
because I went on that mountain and I saw it. He's going to say that in the next phrase. I was an eyewitness to it. Doesn't it make sense that false teachers, even today all false teachers really, want to do away with a coming of Jesus that involves a judgment? Doesn't it make sense? Who wants to be accountable to that? Who wants to say that God is going to make all things right one day? The culmination of all things in Christ. Who wants to say that he will come in judgment and judge sin and judge those who have been rebellious towards him and and mocked his name? This is the second coming. He, he, He has this specific doctrine in mind, though I would believe he has everything he has taught them in mind as well, but he specifically in this passage in 16 through 18 is concerned about this particular doctrine, the second coming of Christ, because the false teachers are saying Jesus is not coming back. There is no second coming. I'll show you that in a moment. There's no future accountability. Peter would say, well, then what's the point of anything? If Jesus isn't coming back, well, let's just all drink and be merry. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel 7. Hold on to 2 Peter and just turn to Daniel 7 for a moment. Daniel 7, verse 13. Your Old Testament, Daniel 7, 13. I kept looking... Daniel 7, 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. See this? One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. Son of man, by the way, was a favorite term that Christ used when he talked about himself. You really don't see him calling himself the Son of God. You don't see him calling himself the Messiah. He, he used passages to say those were, were referring to him, but this was a favorite term of self-reference when it came to Christ. And, and what it was doing, when he would use that term, he's alluding to this passage. This passage. This, this human essence this, this one who was likened to God, but had the form of the Son of Man. He says that in Daniel 7.13, then 7.14 of Daniel. Look at that. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That, that did not happen at his first coming. But that will happen at his second coming that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So you see, at the second coming, or the coming of Christ, you have power, you have authority, and you have eternality. All three of those. So every time Jesus would refer to himself as the Son of Man... A thoughtful Jew in the crowd would automatically be turned to Daniel 7. This is who he's claiming to be. The one that comes. The one that comes and the clouds of heaven are with him. And 
He's going to set up a kingdom that's eternal and powerful. Go back to 2 Peter and then notice the last phrase. This is important. This is important for Peter to bring up. You say, Peter, of all the doctrines you could have talked about, all the doctrines you could have talked about that you were diligently reminding them of, why, Peter, did you pick this doctrine? Why did you pick this doctrine? Go over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Know this first of all. Verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Know this first of all. In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? They're mocking. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the very beginning of creation. Listen, you've been talking about this for a long time. He's never come, and since he's never come, he's never going to come. That's their logic here. Everything just goes on like it always has. Kind of like the days of Noah, actually. Then go down to verse 9. They don't, what they don't understand is the, de- the, the delay is mercy this delay is mercy verse 9 the lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance false teachers say no don't listen to peter he's teaching you a fable no This is mercy that he delays because he is coming. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. There's There's your description of ultimate judgment right there. Noah, it was a flood The second coming judgment will be intense heat. Go back to chapter 1, verse 16. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. This is the reason I'm so diligent. This is the reason I'm so motivated. This is the reason I'm going to die soon. I'm so motivated to make sure you get this truth down, that you understand that everything I'm telling you is true. Understand, I did not follow cleverly devised tales when I made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but I was an eyewitness to it of his majesty. I am one who personally saw the event. I can personally attest to you about this. It's, it's like in a court of law. What happened? You're the eyewitness. What happened? What was going on? What, what, do, you, what do you mean? You told, you, you, this majestic glory you're talking about, what are you talking about? When did, when did this happen? Are you, are you telling us the second coming has already happened and we all missed it? Are you telling us, are you like the the preterist view who say it's, it's already taken place. Jesus makes a very difficult statement in Mark chapter 38. Once again, turn your Bible. So Mark chapter 38. Hold on to 2 Peter. Mark chapter 38. Excuse me, Mark chapter 8, verse 38. If you found 38 in your Bible, get a different translation. You found chapter 38. But Mark 8, 38. 
This is a difficult verse. This is a difficult verse. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus, this is in all the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this scene that I'm reading here to you. Mark 8, 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's talking to his disciples that are gathered there. And then you go down into verse 1 of chapter 9, which was read earlier in the service. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. He says, you're going, some of you who are standing here are going to see second coming glory. Basically, it's a picture. Basically, we know that because Jesus said that. Uh, excuse me, because Jesus refers to this right after he tells his disciples that some of you are going to see this. Six days later, verse 2, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launder on earth can whiten them. He basically, folks, what he did was he peeled back his humanity and revealed his deity. And you have some other events that took place there. But verse 7 says, A cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. This, is a, this, is, this transfiguration is a foretaste. This transfiguration is a foretaste of some other events that actually took place before Christ left. Uh, you see it at his resurrection, his glorified state. You see the ascension. But the point of it all is this, that this is that second coming glory that Jesus was talking about and that Peter is referring to because you notice that Peter is one of the persons with Jesus on that mountain. Peter, James, and John. Why this scene? Why this scene, Peter? I don't want anyone to convince you that Jesus is not coming back when I'm dead. This is the one that Jesus associates with pulling back his humanity, transfiguring, letting people see his second coming glory. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white his face, another text says, his face shone brightly. The cloud of God, the voice of God. This is the scene that Jesus said, you're going to get a little picture of what it's like to seeing the Son of Man coming in Daniel 7, glory. I saw it, I heard his words. That's what they would say. The apostles all, it's interesting, anytime the apostles were eyewitness to anything, it always was followed up by a proclamation. We saw this, we heard this. 
Listen to what John says in 1 John 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, we have seen and testify, we proclaim it. Tied to their eyewitnesses, experiences was this proclamation. And we have seen and heard and we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us, John says in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. 1 John 1, excuse me, 1 John 4, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. These are eyewitnesses. And they testify. See, that's the reason I say to you, we don't have apostles today. We don't have apostles today. We don't have eyewitnesses today. Because no one has seen these things. There are no more firsthand accounts. Paul was able, after the 12, Paul was able to come on the scene and see the resurrected Christ. That would be your only exception. But we have no apostles today because no, uh, by the true definition of apostle, we don't have apostles today because they have not seen. No living person has seen what the apostles saw. I was a witness of his majesty, his greatness, his importance, And see, this is important because we're going to talk about the sure word, verse 19 and following. We're going to talk about the certain word of God later, which is uh, the God using men, inspiring men, inspiration, using human authors, divinely inspired, not the authors, but the words that those authors write down. Those are eyewitnesses. Maybe not to this scene on the mountain, but to Christ. And you need, you need to know why you can trust this book. You, can, you need to know why. Not just that you do. Why do I believe it's inerrant? Why do I believe that it's infallible? Why do I believe it's God's breathed words? Is, are these eyewitnesses reliable? Go to verse 17 of Second Peter chapter 1. He just continues now showing how God endorses Christ. It's a, it's a verbal endorsement that, that God the Father gives to God the Son. You see in verse 17... For when he received honor and glory from, the, from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Listen, isn't that I just saw this? I heard this. This utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. The, the majestic glory made an utterance to him. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. He says, we saw 
this endorsement. We heard this endorsement by the, mag- by the majestic glory. I, can't, I heard this. I can never forget this. I saw the deity of Christ manifested in the incredible light. I saw and heard of the deity of Christ as the majestic word spoke to the majestic Christ. Same word majestic is interesting, used of both God the Father, God the Son. End of verse 16, we saw him in his majesty and the majestic voice, the majestic uh, word spoke to Christ. Deity. We saw all this deity and I can't ever forget it. I have already seen a little taste of second coming glory. That's why, I, that's why I know Jesus is coming back. I know Daniel 7 is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. He's that son of man. He calls him my beloved son. I really like Isaiah 42. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this in Isaiah 42. When you're reading Isaiah 42, you're going to see the word servant. Sometimes servant is talking about Israel, and other times servant is talking about the Messiah. So you've got to kind of figure that out. In the reference of Isaiah 42, the servant is not Israel. The servant is the Messiah, his son. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed, go down to verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That's quoted about him in the New Testament, by the way. He will not be disheartened or crushed until, get this, until he has established justice in the earth. Listen, if this is all there is, we just all might just forget this time this morning. This is meaningless. If this is all there is, and no second coming, and no one to come and bring justice, and no one to come and and to make all the rights and walk all the wrongs right and, and to rule and reign on the earth. He will establish justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. See, he, 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 this endorsement from God I just read to you in, back over in, in 2 Peter sounds very much like this. Echoes the, Mount of Trans- excuse me, echoes the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Go down to verse, go back to 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1.18, maybe you're still there. 2 Peter 1.18. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Just reinforces the firsthand nature of this. I did not read this stuff in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He didn't says, no, I didn't read it in those books. They got it from me, basically. But we ourselves heard this utterance from heaven, 
He calls it a holy mountain. That wasn't a place they went to. That became a holy mountain because of what happened there. Like Mount Sinai, uh, it called the holy mountain because God gave his law there. It's what God did there. It wasn't a place called holy mountain. Let's go up there. People have tried to find this mountain. <laughs> it's kind of wild. But they, people try to find this mountain. I'm sure there's a Catholic church there for a tourist to go to. But I, nobody knows where these places are. But it's holy because of what happened there. So Peter, why are you going through all this history to motivate you how to live in light of the second coming? Light of the second coming. Satan wants us as a church, wants all his churches, the church of Jesus Christ, to believe the false prophets that Jesus is not coming back. He doesn't want us to be second, a second coming church. He doesn't want us to live in light of the second coming. He wants, us to, he wants us to think that there's no accountability. He wants us to think that you, this world is all there is. This world is your home. There's, he, he wants us to think in terms of the temporal. He wants you to dig your tent pegs deep into this earth and this world and your lives are all about this world and nothing else he doesn't want you and I to think that there's more to it than this he doesn't want us to think that that there's any reason to look forward to the second coming and he has his false teachers out there preaching that message it affects how we live Peter said in 1 Peter, we're to live holy lives as we await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, don't believe those lies. Don't drive your tent pegs into this world. He says, your priorities get all out of whack. Your priorities get all out of whack if you think this is all there is. And you start living for this world. You start building up treasure on earth. You start making your barns really full and not realizing the future hope. Peter does say something else in verse 19. I'll close with this. So we have the prophetic word made sure. My first hand eyewitness experience is great, it's solid, it's true. But we have something that's even more sure and more certain than my experience, Peter's saying there. And we have, we have the sure word of God. And that's for next week. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for truth that we could sit in this room this morning and go through these words from the Apostle Peter 2,000 years ago who was a credible eyewitness. John joined him in that. Two credible eyewitnesses to this event, to this picture, to this snapshot of the future second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you this morning that we do not hold in our hands a book of myths and fables concocted to deceive us. 
but we have the true word of God. May our conviction in that grow as we continue in this time of study, this, this letter. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.